My, oh my. It's been a long time since I've been to church. It's, um, well, it was last year since I was here. By the way, Michelle told me this morning that I only have so many more of those jokes. And no, the same one. You can only use that one. <clears throat> but I'm stubborn. It is good to be back here. And I always do enjoy the new year. There's something... Um, it kind of forces everyone to get on the same page in terms of approaching what is fresh. We're taking calendars down and putting new calendars up and um, realizing that the hole in our wall from the thumbtack has been worn just a little bit, so we have to move it a smidge to the right so that the calendar can hold its place. We're trying to remember to write uh, 2022 uh, as the new date, and um, everyone's dealing with that same struggle. And I like to watch... I like to watch it happen, and I like to be a part of it and to do it with all of you, and so I am glad that we're here in the new year and we have an opportunity to worship. Um, Something else that's new, obviously the Advent season has come to its official conclusion, and so we won't be returning to our Christmas series that was concluded last week, and we get to move on from that, Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm ready to start something brand new this morning. Instead, I'd actually like to return to somewhere we left off. Um, If you remember, before the Christmas season began, we were looking, or we started a sermon series called The Old You, and we were looking at the new creation that's formed in us, particularly the way that Paul writes about that to the church in Ephesus. Our focus was only on the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. There's actually six chapters in that book. And um, I think it's a good place for us to jump back into it because what's common in a lot of Paul's writing to the churches is he starts with some big ideas or some theological concepts or um, basically these ideas and concepts about what God has done for us, how he's constructed them. And then as he moves on, he begins to make more practical application that's specific to the audience that he's writing to. And so looking at our sermon series that we did in November and and the preceding month, Paul's laid out a foundation of the new creation that's formed inside of us. And by contrast, he's compared who who we were in our old self compared to who we should be or who we ought to be or who we are in our new self. Big theological concepts. Moving into chapter 3, where we left off from last year, He begins that process of making application. What's this look like in our lives? How are we supposed to apply this? What's it start to to make tangible effects in our relationships and the way that we interact with people? And isn't that something that we need to talk about as the new year begins? After all, we spent the end of last year talking about the old you. Let's spend the beginning of this year talking about the new you. Now, just something to note, I cannot in clear conscience say that we will be picking up in the previous sermon series that we were in, but we will be picking up in the text where we left off. With that said, you can prepare by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, where we'll read the first two verses in the chapter and spend our time discussing that this morning. Before we do that, though, I'd like to pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come to you to open up your word. 
and to open up our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray that you would guide us into understanding of what we're about to read. Help us to make application in our lives and guide us into being better servants for you. God, I thank you so much for this privilege to study your word, to worship with your people, to be called together in one assembly. God, I thank you for the many blessings that you have given to us. And I acknowledge that there's not one person here who's worthy of that. God, I pray that you'd forgive us of our sins, that we would be able to come to you with cleansed and pure hearts. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. The Bible says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That's a weird passage to look at. It doesn't even feel like a complete thought. I assure you, though, there is a lot to unpack in these two verses. You'd be right in saying, though, that there isn't a complete thought. We're missing quite a bit of the context. Paul begins, for this reason. I think it would make sense to remind us of what the reason is that Paul is moving on into this phrase. And of course, to do that, we have to go back to the preceding two chapters because he's laid out his theological arguments. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So what is this reason that Paul calls himself a prisoner? What is this reason that Paul serves on behalf of the Gentiles? Um, And more particularly, the Gentiles who have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to Paul for them. We have to go back to those preceding chapters and remind ourselves what we studied all the way back in November. And I know a lot's happened since then. But to give you some highlights, Paul begins in chapter 1, and you could look at chapter 1, verse 3 if you wanted, pointing out the spiritual blessings that has been given to the people through Christ. Through Christ. That they have been blessed with all spiritual blessings through Him. This was done, of course, so that they could obtain an inheritance that was set aside for the, from the beginning of time for them. That's verse 11, if you wanted to jump down there. And this inheritance that he's bringing is one that they would be adopted into the family of God's kingdom, that they would be able to share in everything that they have. And this is specifically, right, to the church in Ephesus. So a group of believers comprised mainly of both Jews and Gentiles. This is a a conglomerate of cultures meeting together in Ephesus that have been adopted, set aside for this inheritance. That they would have new life in Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 2. This new life being born out of them to give them a new way of living, a new way of doing things. In fact, that they've been completely regenerated and there's no image of what was left in the past. Ephesians 2.4, that God has spilled His rich mercy and His great love for them. All of this building up to where Paul leaves off at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 think most notably in verse 12, that this conglomerate congregation, people from different backgrounds, with different cultures, different preferences, would be called together to one body. 
that they would be unified, completely united. Because of God's rich mercy and great love with which he had for us, because he has made us one in Christ. This is um, an interesting argument that Paul actually begins to lay out when we look at it. Remember Paul's background as well. When we talk about Paul or the apostle who's writing this letter, we remember the same Saul who was persecuting Christians in the early days. The same Paul that had a conversion on the Damascus Road, who was born into and raised up in a part of the Jewish orthodoxy. Before his conversion, he was actually a Pharisee. He wasn't just a Jew, but he was an authority for the Jews. And immediately after his conversion, if we follow along in the book of Acts, what happens in Paul's life or along his journey, he is called to a ministry that is specific to the Gentile people. Culturally, I think we all understand this about the, the conflict between these two groups, specifically the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, the Jewish people of the day referred to the, uh, the Gentile people of the day as dogs. And And that wasn't a compliment. People didn't like dogs. They were dirty. They weren't domesticated. Dogs in the Bible, whenever we we hear people referring to dogs, especially culturally in this Jewish context, that's not a good thing. When you read about dogs, we talk about this animal that vomits and returns to it to lick it up. So the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, and likewise, many of the Gentiles did not really see themselves as associating with this Jewish group of people. Paul is a part of this orthodoxy, and so he's been raised up in this, and immediately following his conversion, if we follow Paul's history and the journey that he goes on, what Paul does is he's called to minister to this Gentile group of people. This is actually incredibly radical. If you read the early history of the church and you go through Acts, you find that it caused conflict time and time again. In fact, it even caused division in some instances between different groups of people who felt that the Jewish rights and laws and regulations and everything were so important that in order for a Gentile, even though Christ died for everybody, in order for somebody who wasn't a Jew to actually accept the free gift of salvation that God had given to them, they had to subscribe to the Jewish laws and rituals. And there's an entire group of people in the, in the, in the Bible or, or in, more specifically in the early church who are rallying behind this idea that in order for a Gentile to accept the free gift of God's grace, they have to become a Jew first. In Acts, there's the Jerusalem conference when it finally comes to a head and, and the the apostles and the authorities in the church have to come together to make some sort of, well, reach some sort of an understanding about how we should approach this difficult situation. After all, Jesus said he didn't come to remove one iota of what was previously written, but the new covenant that he establishes certainly makes 
some of it not necessary or applicable. What do I mean by that? Don't get confused by what I'm saying. The Old Testament is as valid now as it was valid when it was written. Everything in it is still true. Everything in it is still applicable, profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, for rebuke and reproof. However, the covenants of the Old Testament are replaced by a perfect sacrifice that establishes everything that I will ever need in and through Christ. Paul is one who argues the merits and the magnitude of God's grace at the Jerusalem conference to say that there is nothing above God's grace that is necessary for any person to come to a saving relationship with Christ. There's no ritual. There's no training session. All it requires is a person's faith be placed in Christ. He argues this, and as we follow Paul, it becomes increasingly more evident the calling that God had put in his life. As he ministers to churches in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, Colossae, As he returns to Rome, as he returns to um, the temple, as he's accused in the temple of allowing this very group of people that he's fighting against the Gentiles to come into the temple and he's arrested. And he's even given an opportunity to talk and he begins to share his testimony and the, the people even listen to him until he says the bad word, the G word, Gentile. And immediately they rally against him again and he's taken into prison. This calling that's put on his life for the Gentile people, it's not something small. And we begin to see why it's not something small as he writes to this church in Ephesus, as he writes to them and he reminds them of their oneness in Christ, the unity that they've been brought together in, that even different cultures and everything else that have come together does not separate them because they're united in something that is far bigger. Something so much bigger that it takes everything that was in their life and makes it old so that they can become new. This is a huge picture of regeneration. And it's for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you see it. We talked about this old self and this new self, and Paul immediately turns around and calls himself a prisoner. I told you a moment ago that something interesting happens at chapter 3 because Paul shifts directions in the way that he's talking. He's no longer writing about this theological concept about being inherited into the kingdom of God, that God's grace has established us, that we are a new person, that we are united into the body of Christ as one. And then it shifts verse Oh, chapter 3, he begins to progress these ideas and he moves them along a little bit further and he starts to make application to them. And he calls himself a prisoner. 
Now contrast that with what he just said at the beginning of chapter 2 as he's describing what we looked like before we were new creations, what we looked like as an old creation. Following the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2.2. 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Earlier, at the, or the, at the end of last year, not earlier in the year. This is as early as it gets in the year. But at the end of last year, whenever we were going over this passage, we were looking at the real picture that Paul was painting of the old us in this picture. And it's one of bondage and enslavement that we're trapped into the passions of our flesh. That we actually aren't even in control of the things that we do because we're following without even realizing that we're following. That the real condition of a depraved man is not one to get angry at, but it's one to mourn over. And here we have Paul saying that we were prisoners in that way. And immediately in chapter 3, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Let's be clear about something. We did not exchange being a prisoner to sin to be a prisoner of something else. In fact, the word prisoner that Paul's using describes something that I think we would would miss if we didn't spend some time looking at it. In much the same way that Israelites who were enslaved, trapped into bondage in Egypt, were freed and redeemed and became prisoners of God. Prisoners not in the sense that they were trapped in bondage or that they didn't have freedom, but rather that they relinquished their freedom. They forsook everything that was in them. They gave it up to become a willing prisoner. A servant who sacrifices everything that they have that they can know God. That they can spend time with Him. That they can honor Him. I think another way to look at it is it's somebody that understands the magnitude of God's grace in their own life, that they give up everything that they have because they realize it wasn't theirs to begin with. They realize the magnitude of God's grace that has protected them, that has provided for them, that that has put them wherever they are at and promises them so much more in the future that they willingly become a prisoner. The irony, of course, is that Paul is literally a prisoner in Rome as he writes this. But he's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not in house arrest. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I said that Paul argued that the only thing necessary for a person, and specifically a Gentile, to be saved is that they would place their faith in Christ. And I like the acronym that was on the 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 screens a moment ago or the beginning of the service, forwarding all issues to heaven. I like more this acronym for faith. Forsaking all, I trust Him. 
Because real faith requires that we forsake everything. Real faith means I don't have a backup plan. Real faith means that there isn't a plan B because there's nothing that will ever save me except Jesus. There was nothing that will ever redeem my wretched, depraved condition except Jesus. Except new life in Him. And so Paul contrasts these two pictures. A prisoner whose will is taken from them in bondage and in slavery, and a prisoner who relinquishes their will out of love and joy. This is a picture of submission to God's will. It's actually giving up our will so that God's will can be the priority in our life. Because sometimes Paul will ask, or God will ask us to do things that we don't want to do. Things that go against our nature. Even in Paul's circumstances, he sees that the good work that was laid out before him at the moment of his salvation requires him to surrender more to God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul wrote that only a few sentences back in Ephesians 2.10. Some of us have failed to walk in the good works that God has prepared before us. Michelle and I were talking as we spent many hours driving back and forth, back and forth to see family over the past two weeks. Well, some of the things that we've gone through and some of the things that we've experienced together and some of the decisions that we've made and um, the reasons that we made them at the time and looking back, you know, I, I think I made a comment. Um, some, I, I think I just said, you know, I've never regretted not saying anything. You're just keeping my mouth shut. That's never been a big regret when I've been angry and decided to keep my mouth shut. However, I have regretted from time to time the things that I've decided to say. And um, we were talking about those regrets. I know there are times when there have been opportunities for good works that God has prepared before me in my life. And those are the moments where I think I have the most regrets. Now, let's be honest. The reason we choose not to pursue God in following the good works that He's laid out for us, they come, they come about many reasons. Because we're afraid to go deeper with God. We're afraid of what that relationship would actually look like. Because we don't want real change in our life because we'd rather go back to, to living however we want because there's an active war going on inside of us between our flesh and the new self that's born and comes alive. But there's no reason that prevents us from looking back at the decisions that we have before us and not having regrets for not following what God had set. What God had established for us. In fact, I think all of the reasons 
that we could possibly come up with for making our own decisions instead of putting God's will above our own. Actually expose a much bigger issue inside of the heart of the Christian. And that is that we have made God's grace so small we don't even comprehend how it touches our day-to-day. We've made the great mercy that God shows to us, the love that He pours out for us, the sacrifice made for us so small that it doesn't touch our daily lives. When the reality is, it is so big, there is nothing that it cannot and should not consume. Let's move on in our text. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. On behalf of you, Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul writes, he's a prisoner, not of Rome, but a prisoner of Jesus. And of course, we know that he's writing not to a, a, a group of heathens or a group of unregenerate people. This isn't an apologetics letter. He's not trying to convince anyone of anything. Instead, he's writing to a church. And um, of course, that means a body of baptized Believers. So these are people that have already been saved. They've been baptized into the church. They've identified with Christ and they've done all of these things. He's assuming that they've accepted the grace that was given to Paul for them. Another interesting word in this phrase, the ESV translates it to stewardship. If some of you are using the King James, you'll find dispensation in your translation. Um, And I thought the word difference was strange enough. I had to dig just a bit deeper as I was looking at this. Interestingly enough, the word stewardship translated in the ESV actually comes from the same Greek word that we get our English word economy. What's that mean? I I hope that helps explain exactly what I mean by stewardship or dispensation. Economy. Everyone's on the same page now. It made no sense to me. So I had to keep digging. The reason it comes from the word that we get economy is oikonoma, or oikonomia, which is comprised of two words in Greek, oiko, meaning house, and nomos, meaning law. So literally, this would translate to the law of the house, or the house law. And that's where we get the word economy, the law of the house. Hopefully that explains why we get the word dispensation or stewardship. So everyone's on the same page now. Oh no, you're still confused? Me too. Because what Paul's writing here, assuming that you have heard of the law of the house of God's grace that was given to me for you. Here's what he's actually saying. Or here's what's intended by what he is writing. This doesn't belong to me. The grace that I've shared with you and the good news that I've shared with you, it doesn't belong to me. 
In fact, the, the rallies that I've put up and the, the fights that I've, I've gone through and the arguments that I've made on behalf of the Gentiles that they would be equal heirs with the Jews in this new establishment of the new covenant, this new house, this one body that I've been talking about. Well, all of the rules aren't mine. And I can't play by my own rules. Because when you're in somebody else's house, you follow their rules. Right? If you're in someone else's house, you follow their rules. Here's the rule about grace. It's so big, it consumes everything that I call myself a prisoner. Not because I'm trapped in slavery, but because I've relinquished everything that I have. Here we are given this tremendous gift, but it's not just for ourselves. It's for others. The church doesn't exist so that we can feed ourselves, so that we can um, fuel ourselves, but the church exists so that we can continue to propagate the good news that has been given to us. In fact, it doesn't matter how healthy a church is if they are not reaching out if they don't have a mission that clearly puts them in a direction that moves beyond them, that church is not functioning properly. In fact, the mission is so important that it shouldn't matter how unhealthy a congregation is, the church should still be focused on these things. Really look at the picture of what Paul's writing here, and I think we've gone through it slow enough now that we can, we can see some of the, well, just how startling this is. Here's this old man that has spent the majority of his life rallying on behalf of the Gentiles that they would be equal heirs with the Jews, that they would be able to experience this good news that he first received, and now he's been a steward of it and given it to them, that they can be saved. And he's writing to this church from prison... And he calls himself a prisoner of Christ because he's given up everything that he has and he's happy to do it on behalf of the Gentiles who need to hear the message that he's preaching, assuming that they have received the stewardship of God's grace that was first given to him on behalf of you. This is remarkable, and I don't, I don't bring this up so that we can talk about how cool Paul was. I mean, I think he's a good biblical character, but it's really not relevant here. Because what we find is that the same attitude that Paul has as a prisoner and as a steward is the same attitude that his church should have. In fact, he's modeling for the Ephesians that they would do what Paul does. That you would consider yourself a prisoner. Not in the sense that you were in your old self, but that you would consider yourself a prisoner who gives up everything that you have because you realize you're not in your own house anymore. You've been united, inherited, grafted into the body of Christ that everything that you have comes from His house. everything that makes us up, that we would give it up. Every passion, every ambition, everything that could possibly stand in the way 
of glorifying God, we have to be ready to lie down or lay down. In some cases, that means allowing God to use it for His glory. In other cases, that means forsaking something that we want very much. But I like what Deanne said this morning. Joy comes from Him. And there's joy even in those moments when we give up something that we want very badly. The reality is around stewardship is it's not so much an acknowledgement of how much we owe God or how much He's done for us, but the real acknowledgement of stewardship is realizing that it was never ours to begin with. And what I'm talking about is everything that's in our life, every hair on our head, What does it mean to be a steward of what God has given us? But to think of ourselves as prisoners. I hope that's been an alluring message. If if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I hope you feel convinced that you should want to become a prisoner for Him. More realistically, though, if you do consider Christ your Savior, I pray that you would be convinced or at the very least, convicted. That you're holding on to something more than you should. When you hold on to something more than you should, it does more than just limit the way that we serve God or the way that we honor Him with our lives or or the way that we, we turn to Him. It actually puts up a barrier that prevents you from actually being able to be closer with God. When you hold on to something in your life more than you should, it does more than just allow you to follow in obedience, but it actually hinders you. And I don't know specifically what that thing could be. For me, a few years ago, it was... was, um, giving up a career that I could, could be a preacher. I mean, I love it. I love preaching. But my life was heading in a totally different direction, and it wasn't bad. But I'm happy to be a prisoner. I'm happy to take the priorities of all that stuff in my life and to be here with you. As we begin the new year, I pray that our church would approach the way that we serve God with these two words in mind, that we would be prisoners and that we'd be stewards. That we'd think about Paul's attitude and that we would continue to give up everything that we have because we see how big God's grace is. As we sing a song of invitation, I'll invite you to reflect on these things. First, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and your truth and everything that you've given to us. God, I pray that you would continue to conform us all to your image. And God, I pray that you would continue to give us the insight and clarity we need to know how we're supposed to follow you and how we're supposed to be obedient to you and and exactly what that looks like in our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to know how to apply your word to our lives this morning. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Number 366 as we all stand.